Author Charlotte Gray is a Canadian born in Great Britain who now lives in a suburb of Ottawa. Her book titled Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons is about Jenny Jerome Churchill and Sarah Delano Roosevelt. The former Jenny Jerome was born in the United States and was the mother of Winston Churchill. Sarah Delano married James Roosevelt and became the mother of FDR in 1882. Author Charlotte Gray writes that one of the reasons to write about these two women is that their reputations, so different within their lifetime, have both suffered since their deaths. Charlotte Gray, you write in your book one of the reasons to write about these two women because of their reputations are so different within their lifetime have suffered since their deaths. Explain that. Well, these two women, in their day, you can't imagine two more polar opposites. Jenny Jerome Churchill was a lively, gregarious extrovert who loved parties, showed tremendous initiative, had a pretty active libido, and was a an influencer before the, the term had been invented in London as an adult. <clears throat> Sarah, for her part, was somebody who stuck much more to the traditional role of being a mother and a, a fairly grand dame landowner in the Hudson Valley. And she did not push the envelope in the way that Jenny did. But uh, nonetheless, she was um, a really sort of outstanding example of um, a, a wealthy woman who took great responsibility for the people who worked for her and f was determined to help her son's career. What's happened since then is that both have really been portrayed in quite a negative way, usually by the um, biographers, mainly male, of their sons who have denigrated them in the first chapter of the biographies of the great men, as though great men actually have to sort of emerge from the difficulties of their parental relations. Jenny, instead of being portrayed as a lively woman, smart, she began a literary journal, she outfitted a hospital ship. She's been portrayed as just a sort of um, flirtatious uh, featherhead, which she wasn't. And Sarah, who was, um, became in her, by the end of her life, a sort of symbol of all that was best about Ameri traditional American values, she has been portrayed as just a smothering mother. So I, as I read the biographies and then as I began researching the women, I realized there was quite a disconnect in the way that women were dealt with. These women were dealt with by their son's biographers. You are in Canada, but you were born in Great Britain. When did you make the journey over to uh, North America? I switched countries in uh, 1979. And um, since then, actually, I've also lived for three years in the States. But I made the journey. And if you're going to ask me why, I have to admit there was a man involved. <laughs> So when did you get interested in these two women to write a book about them? I've always been interested in women's lives, <clears throat> particularly because, you know, of a hundred history books that are written, about sort of 90% of them are actually about men. And I've always found women's lives and how women have always exerted e agency, even in the most restrictive circumstances, terrifically intriguing. And also writing about women's lives, of course, is a great way to delve into social history, into what society was like there at that period. And also, what was it like actually on the ground? What was it like to live then? What did it look like, smell like, sound like? All the kind of sort of um, atmospheric details that any feature writing, writer in a magazine is always looking for to take the reader into the period. And I was particularly intrigued by these women because they were born in 1854, both of them, within 60 miles of each other in New York. And they went in such completely different ways, directions, but they had both been born into the very affluent 
class, the one percent, they were the one one percenters of their time, and with the same assumptions about women's roles should be, and yet, as I've said already, they were such a contrast. What were they alike, and what were they not alike? Well, they were alike, as I said, in having been born into very wealthy families, and so they were both born with the assumptions, first of all, that they would very rarely actually have to get their hands dirty with domestic work. There were servants to do that, and that they would not have any um, obligation to earn their own livings. They were unlike in that although their families, the Jerome family for Jenny and the Delano family for for Sarah, uh, were wealthy, particularly the Delano family, um, the Delanos were old money so that S- Sarah was always going to be um, completely welcomed into the upper reaches of Manhattan society, whereas the Jeromes were new money. And that meant that the old Manhattan society was always going to resist um, a- allowing these Aravistes into their more sort of more more uh, the the clubby atmosphere of those who belong <clears throat> so the other difference between the two women of course was personality and jenny as i've mentioned was so lively and so ready to just press the ben- b- press the boundaries of behavior and sarah respected the traditional values she'd been raised with how did it start for both women uh, when it led to their marriages and then the birth of their sons? Where did it start for each one of them? Well, for Jenny, it started with the fact that she, her mother realized that uh, Jenny and her two sisters were unlikely to find the kind of husbands that their mother wanted for them in Manhattan because they were as I've mentioned earlier, Aravistes, she took them to Paris and then to London. And Jenny met Lord Randolph Churchill, second son of the Duke of Marlborough. Instant steamy romance, which took both sets of parents, the Marlboroughs and the Jeromes, by surprise. And they weren't really very happy about the about the marriage. And Lord Randolph and Jenny just completely sort of steamrolled the opposition and got married very fast. And within seven months of the marriage, Winston was born. And at that point, the Churchills were launched on a very tempestuous marriage. And Jenny's career as somebody who was always going to catch the limelight because she was such a charismatic personality. In contrast, Sarah, Sarah Delano, she began by also having quite an exotic childhood. She lived some of her childhood in Hong Kong, where her father was very involved in the China trade, uh, particularly, I'm afraid, um, opium, which was the fentanyl of its day. He made a fortune there. They lived in the Hudson Valley. They returned there after they'd spent a period in Paris. Sarah, like Jenny was actually very cosmopolitan. Jenny was bilingual. Sarah was trilingual. She could speak English, French, and German. She settled happily with her sisters and her parents in the Hudson Valley. And for a while, it seemed that she was unlikely to get married. Um, She was 26 before she finally announced to her parents' surprise that she would like to marry a man who was twice her age, who in the same age, in fact, as her father, uh, and who was a neighbor in the Hudson Valley, James Roosevelt, a widower who had um, whose wife had died and who'd fallen in love with this graceful, well-read young woman who her parents, I think, had assumed would stay home and look after them in their old age. Sarah <clears throat> confounded all expectations, married James Roosevelt, very, very happy relationship, um, very steady, and several months, in fact, a couple of years after the marriage, uh, Franklin was born. So Winston arrives when his mother is only 20. Sarah is nearing her 30s. 
when Franklin is born. What was Lord Churchill like? Randolph Churchill. He was a man who, it's really reading about him, it's impossible to like him. He was um, an example of an upper-class Englishman who'd gone to Eton and Oxford, who'd always assumed that uh, he was allowed to do anything he liked. He was he was bright, witty, deeply sarcastic, not very nice to his wife at all. She was captivated by the idea that he was going into politics, although he wasn't really. He only did it because his father said if he went into politics, uh, he could be allowed to marry Jenny. Uh, but Jenny loved the idea that she was marrying, marrying a rising star in the British political life. And um, it was going well for a while, except that Lord Randolph Churchill turned out to be not just very clever, but also reckless. And he took various risks in his career and in his personal life and finally just walked away from politics to his wife's astonishment. It turned out he was very ill, probably maybe syphilis, maybe a, a brain tumor. It's never been decided. His family thought it was syphilis. And the last five years of the marriage were actually wretched because he got sicker and sicker and frankly nastier and nastier to both Jenny and to his two sons, Winston and Jack. And so Jenny, who thought she was going to be, she was marrying a future prime minister and going to be standing next to him as he ruled the British Empire, found herself still in her 40s as a very attractive, but in fact, um, not very wealthy widow uh, and with no prospect at that stage of um, being the wife of a prime minister. But being Jenny, she decided she was going to be mother of a prime minister. And so she decided that Winston should get her full attention now and that uh, she would help him in his political career. What was James Roosevelt like? James Roosevelt was a sweet man. James Roosevelt was a, um, a gentleman, as his wife always liked to say. Um, he was... Uh, he dabbled in the various sort of possibilities of investment in the rising industrial might of the United States at the end of the 19th century, had not done very well. So he'd retreated to being the sort of benevolent lord of the manor in the Hudson Valley. And he loved his second wife, Sarah. He quickly discovered that although in theory, she was the deferential um, angel in the house that Victorian literature always dictated women should be. She had a will of iron, and soon she was making the major decisions in his household. And then his own health began to fail. He had uh, heart problems. And soon she had really taken control both of the estate and, um, and of the family life. And he died, but she they were a devoted couple and very supportive of each other and both adored their only son, Franklin. Why did she not remarry? Good question. She must have been incredibly eligible. She was still a good-looking youngish woman. She was incredibly wealthy. I couldn't find any mention of suitors, although I would have thought that there must have been and she really did dictate, she really did direct all her attention to Franklin from that point onwards. She'd always been the most devoted mother. But from now on, Franklin and her own family, the Delanos, were her main sources of life and affection and interest. She was a very family-oriented woman. How many children did she have, and what relationship did she have to James Roosevelt's child from the first marriage? She had one child, Franklin, and then Rosie Roosevelt, as he was known. His name was Roosevelt Roosevelt, which see, was shows how fond they were of the name. <laughs> um, she was very 
she thought he was a little wild to begin with, because in fact, he, like Jenny Jerome's father, was very interested in the high life in Manhattan when he was a young man and went to the race courses regularly. <clears throat> but they became very close in later years. It seems to have been a good relationship. How close was Jenny Jerome to Winston Churchill as he grew up? Well, she. this is one of the reasons why his biographers have always denigrated Jenny. They've always said she just ignored him until he was in his late teens. She didn't ignore him. She did what aristocrats in that period did, which was hand him over to a nanny and then send him off to boarding school. Increasingly, in fact, she was preoccupied with her husband's health as he became more irascible and unpredictable. And she was often in the position of um, really sort of shielding Winston from his father's rages. She she wasn't a devoted mother in the early years by any means, but Winston Churchill always rather enjoyed sort of make, saying how glamorous she was. He said, um, she she was a star, but she twinkled in the distance for me. When he's nearing the end of his teens and his father dies, <clears throat> she then does become much more concerned with Winston, both loving and supportive, but also pushing. They don't have much money. Winston has great earning potential. He knows that he can't rely on Jenny because she's wildly extravagant. Um, and R Lord Randolph didn't leave her, by her standards, very much money. Um, so he has to earn, and she does everything she can to help him. And she's got this amazing network. I mean, she just knows everybody. She knows the editors of all the newspapers, so she gets some newspaper commissions. She knows members of the cabinet. She knows the uh, senior levels of the armed forces, so she gets some military commissions. And at that point, they just get closer and closer. And when you read their letters, it's almost like a brother and sister as they have this joint project, which is the promotion of Winston Churchill. And what did she do about other marriages in her life? Well, Jenny, who was always known to have, have affairs, um, including during her marriage to Lord Randolph Churchill, um, and one of her most important liaisons was actually with the Prince of Wales. I think that was probably a fairly short-lived physical relationship, but they then became very close long-term friends. And she also became friends with the Prince of Wales's um, wife, Princess Alexandra. Um, she, she obviously felt that marriage was going to maintain her respectability and also, she hoped, solve her financial problems, although she never married for money, which was probably a mistake given her massive debts. And after Lord Randolph died, she did marry twice more, both times to men who were the same age as her son, Winston. So you can see that she was an attractive, lively woman. She always had lots of men who were courting her. She also had a long affair with Count Kinsky, who was um, an a, a dip Austrian diplomat. But she um, she wanted to be married, unlike Sarah Delano, who obviously felt one marriage was enough and she could manage perfectly well on her own. Any evidence anywhere that Sarah Delano Roosevelt had an affair? None that I could find. <laughs> so I have to ask you at this point, if you had to choose between these two and have dinner with them, which one would you pick? I have to tell you, Brian, that when you write about any individual, male or female, extrovert or introvert, when you're writing about that particular individual, you're in their lives, but you're not in their lives, and you have so many questions you want to ask them. And obviously, you know, the pat answer is, well, Jenny was livelier and more fun. Um, but also, I know women like Jenny, and they are lovely, and she'd be really good good to have an evening with. Sarah's a little bit more of a mystery to me because there've been no biographers biographies of her. There's been very little sort of written about her. There's been, um, f she's 
really overshadowed, obviously, by Eleanor Roosevelt, who didn't like her. Um, so I have more questions for Sarah. So I actually refuse to answer your question. <laughs> okay, what was the relationship? Give us more about the the relationship between Eleanor and her mother-in-law. A very complicated relationship because Eleanor is a very complicated individual. She had a completely wretched childhood, unlike Franklin, who'd had this sort of idyllic childhood with an uh, amazingly loving parents. Eleanor's parents both died when she was quite young. Her father was a hopeless alcoholic. Her father, who was actually the brother of President Teddy Roosevelt, um, she, by the time she was 19, which was when she and Franklin surprised everybody by getting engaged, she was a quite damaged individual with very little self-confidence, very little sense of self-worth. She'd always been told that, you know, she was ugly. Her mother had called her granny because she thought that Eleanor was <clears throat> sort of a bit pathetic. And <clears throat> when she first married Franklin and she first got to know Sarah, she thought she had sort of tumbled into the Garden of Eden because she was suddenly in this happy family that was incredibly wealthy. So unlike her own family, they weren't scrambling for money all the time. And she loved the fact that Sarah seemed to be so sort of affectionate, helping her decide what to do, telling her how the wedding should go, really taking charge because that was Sarah's nature. Sarah, of course, had actually been um, taken aback when her son got engaged because she had thought that Franklin would spend his 20s living with her in Manhattan and they'd have this sort of wonderful relationship while he went to law school and then went and worked in a good establishment firm. Instead of which she discovered she was gonna to have to share him. But she also realized that Eleanor was a deer in the headlights and uh, she could help a lot and she did. Eleanor and Franklin had six children, one of whom died within 10 years so Eleanor, who really didn't have a clue about motherhood or um, how to handle anything or how to decorate a house, or became very dependent on Sarah for good advice, for financial help, for um, taking a charge of children when uh, Eleanor herself was incapable of doing it. And they were very close for a long time, but it was a dependence that Eleanor subsequently resented. And they grow apart, they start growing apart in the 1920s. And this is when Franklin himself is often absent because he's um, had polio and he's putting all his efforts into trying to learn to walk again. And Eleanor is also at this stage developing her own career as somebody who's taking an interest in the underprivileged and she becomes much more um, involved as an advocate for various causes. And Sarah's a little disapproving of that kind of behavior because it's not the way she thinks that upper-class philanthropy should work. They become less and less fond of each other at this stage, but Sarah just purses her lips. Eleanor has outbursts and then finds herself apologizing cravenly and asking for Sarah's forgiveness. And so it becomes a very tricky relationship and what happens after Sarah dies in 1941 is that Franklin dies only four years later. And there's a wave of affection and grief for the president. And this tsunami just sort of uh, drowns any thoughts about Sarah and grief for her. And Eleanor starts writing memoirs and talking about her difficult relationship with her mother-in-law. And each of her three memoirs, each subsequent one, becomes more and more critical of Sarah. So it's Eleanor's impressions of Sarah as this very controlling matriarch that has dominated subsequent portrayals of Sarah in um, biographies of her son. Whereas if you actually sort of come at it from a different point of view and look at what Sarah was doing and how Sarah was rescuing, in some cases, the Roosevelt children from 
a fairly harem scarum upbringing that they had with a rather cold mother. Eleanor didn't enjoy motherhood. And Sarah always made her house open to them. She loved them. She indulged them. They often said, you know, that uh, Hyde Park, which was her house, was their real home. Um, She allowed Eleanor to pursue her interests. And she allowed Eleanor to become the woman she did subsequently become. How long was Jenny Jerome in her son's life? This is a tragedy. Jenny Jerome was thrilled when Winston Churchill was doing so well in his political career. He first um, was elected in 1900. Jenny went to help him campaign. She was um, thrilled when he became um, the um, involved in the wartime activities of the British government in 1914. He was first Lord of the Admiralty. She was appalled when, after the horrible um, defeat in Gallipoli, uh, Winston was sacked and went to work again, she, Jenny, trying to trying to massage her contacts to ensure Winston's um, would be readmitted into the sort of inner circles of politics. But she was also still going to parties. She was still shopping. She was still um, living her own life. She also was making some money, finally, flipping houses. She had a good eye for interior design, and she would buy houses, Im- improve them, <clears throat> and sell them. After one big sale, she went to Italy to stay with a friend, bought some really sexy shoes, came back, went to stay with friends for the weekend, fell down the stairs because she was wearing sexy shoes, and uh, broke her ankle. Gangrene set in. This is 1921, and she felt she had to have her leg amputated and soon after that went into a coma. She's now 67. And um, Winston gets this call saying, your mother's in a coma. We think she's dying. Before that, it was... Sounds it everybody thought, well, she's lost a leg, but Jenny herself, with her usual wit, had said, I'll just have to put my best foot forward. Um, Winston runs through the streets of London in his pajamas, weeping wildly, and doesn't get there in time. She dies very suddenly. So he she never saw Winston's great political triumph 20 years later when, um, 19 years later when he becomes the Prime Minister. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What was, when they were together, I mean, before he left home, what was the environment, the home environment? Where did they live? How fancy was it? Servants, butlers, all that stuff. You know, explain the atmosphere. It was a pretty sort of um, unpredictable atmosphere in that sometimes there was money and sometimes there wasn't. Sometimes she was in a glorious house with... um, hot and cold running servants and um, wonderful little dinner parties. Sometimes she had to rent out whatever accommodation she'd taken uh, and go and stay with the mother-in-law, her own mother-in-law, the Duchess of Marlborough, who she really didn't like very much because um, she couldn't afford her own uh, establishment. Um, And during these years, which is often when um, Winston is at boarding school at Harrow, 
he ha- he's coming back. He's asking he wants to come back and stay for the weekend. And it's tricky because she's she's often going off herself for country weekends with friends to get away from her mother-in-law. There is a period, though, where before Rat Lord Randolph dies, where she uh, they have a house. Oh, no, there's a period when she is married to her second husband when they have a house outside London. And it's a very pretty house. And Winston is beginning his political career. And that's very comfortable. Both her sons love to come and spend weekends with her. She has parties there. It doesn't last long because she and her second husband run out of money, George Cornwallis West being 20 years younger than her and having absolutely no idea when he married her how big her debts were. Um, And so it only lasts two or three years. But there are marvelous moments when it's comfortable and there's a marvelous family atmosphere and then everything falls apart because the money's run out. As long as we're talking about her for the moment, what was Winston Churchill's relationship with Lord Randolph Churchill? It's sad, actually, because Lord Randolph really paid very little attention to either of his sons. Um, The younger boy, Jack, uh, was a much more easygoing character than Winston. He was um, not as bumptious, not as demanding, not as emotional. Um, But it didn't make any difference. Uh, Lord Randolph had very little interest in either of the boys. And Lord Randolph gets particularly furious because Winston Churchill is terrible in school. He doesn't um, learn... He's in, he doesn't make any effort. So he uh, is often in the sort of the low in the class lineup. He actually has a brilliant English teacher who teaches him, insists that he learns some of the great poems, Victorian poems off by heart, and who teach, gives him a really good grasp of um, grammar and rhythm. And this will serve... Winston Churchill extremely well when he becomes the great the great speechmaker in the Second World War, maintaining British morale. But they decide that Winston's marks just aren't he's just not bright enough to go to Oxford or Cambridge, that he should go to the into the army. And even there he doesn't really do very well. At one point, Lord Randolph Churchill writes him a blisteringly cruel letter saying you're just second rate and I'm not going to talk to you any longer. Go back to the Roosevelt situation that Campobello, Hyde Park, the New York townhouses, what was the living conditions? And And you refer to this in the beginning of the book at the reputation of Sarah being so close, but what was the living what were the living conditions between sarah and eleanor and fdr in those locations well in each case eleanor really doesn't have her own home and this comes to be one of the bones of contention for her that she doesn't feel that she has her own space when she first marries she and franklin have a little house of their own in manhattan but Sarah's just around the corner and comes to dinner most nights. At Hyde Park, there's a rather sad description of in the snuggery, as the sort of family room is called there, there was a nice fireplace and a comfortable chair each side of it, uh, which forever, um, since James's death, Franklin and Sarah had each taken a comfortable chair. And Eleanor was left sitting on the floor between them. So if ever, you know, anybody was going to feel a bit de trop, it's going to be there. Later on at Campobello, in fact, a neighbor with Campobello, the wonderful island, which is actually in New Brunswick, Canada, but it's just off the main coast. They've built a cottage there when, in fact, Franklin was just a little boy and Franklin loves it up there because he loves sailing. And again, Sarah has a big cottage there which we start off with Eleanor going there with the children. Finally, in fact, Sarah gives her her own cottage and Eleanor is absolutely thrilled. It's the first time she's had her own space where she can actually arrange the furniture herself. But in Manhattan, 
Sarah says, I'm going to give you a house. And this is at a stage where Eleanor is still very dependent on Sarah and absolutely thrilled to hear this. But it turns out that it's actually two houses, two very tall, thin, adjoined houses with doorways um, on the first and the fifth floors that uh, connect the two houses. And Sarah's in one half and Franklin and Eleanor and their children and all their servants are in the other half. So wherever Sarah, wherever Eleanor is, she feels that Sarah's really breathing down her neck. This gets to the point where, in fact, Franklin, who always is aware of the friction between his wife and mother, encourages Eleanor to, in fact, um, find build her own cottage at Hyde Park, some distance from the main house, Springwood, which... Sarah cannot understand what this is about. Why does she need to do that? But Franklin sees that, in fact, it would make his own life easier if his mother and his wife were not in the same building. As you know, if you walk through Hyde Park, uh, Springwood, the, the home that they lived in, they tell you, you walk right down the hallway, here's Franklin's bedroom, here's Eleanor's bedroom, and here's Sarah's bedroom. I assume you've done that. So what's, I have. And, and, and that's a little close, it seems to me, for comfort. Uh, what was your take on that? I mean, they're, they're all well, inter- Aren't the doors open? They're interconnected. You can go from one to the next. Well, this, this was um, after Springwood had been expanded in about, I think it was, was it about 1915 that um, Franklin and his mother, Sarah, decided that... Uh, they needed more space for all Franklin's children at, um, in Springwood. And so uh, as originally set up, it was Franklin and Sarah's, Franklin and Eleanor's bedroom in one wing and then a dressing room between them and then Sarah's bedroom on the other side of the dressing room. What happens is that, and we haven't touched on this, but the Franklin has an affair with Lucy Mercer and Eleanor discovers the letters in 1918. She's devastated. By the way, how does she, because you write about, how did she discover those letters? Franklin has been in Europe. He's coming back on um, a a boat and along with many of the uh, soldiers returning home from the First World War, he catches flu, what they then called Spanish flu. He's incredibly sick. And so he is carried off the boat um, when they reach New York and taken to Sarah's house. And Eleanor is doing the unpacking for him. And he has a bundle of letters in his um, in his suitcase, which are from Lucy Mercer. Lucy Mercer is a young woman who had worked for Eleanor, actually, in Washington when um Franklin was there as as uh, working for the government and he she is devastated she had no idea that her husband was having an affair although I think she had suspicions and she he kept packing her off to Campobello the summer cottage every summer and then he would spend time with Lucy who was a very well brought up very sweet woman who he obviously loved Eleanor's reaction is, oh, my God, I can't stand it. This is betrayal. And she's prepared to give Franklin a divorce, which in those days would have completely stigmatized both of them. I mean, divorce was unacceptable. Sarah comes along. She can't stand the idea of her five grandchildren growing up in a divided family and says that's not going to happen. And Louis Howe, Franklin's political advisor, also points out that Franklin can forget any political ambitions uh, if he, because Americans will not vote for a man who's been divorced. But Sarah, the the real killer shot is that Sarah says that Franklin can't expect any money from her if and she's not going to share her fortune with him if he divorces Eleanor. So Eleanor and Franklin stay together, but it's pretty clear that from that moment onwards, Eleanor is 
never going to sleep with Franklin again. And at that point, Franklin stays in the bedroom he has at Hyde Park. Sarah stays in the bedroom that she has at Hyde Park. And Eleanor moves into the what was the dressing room between these two bedrooms. It's um, the clearest indication one can have that uh, there are three people in this marriage. I, I can't let this go by without quoting from your book what Sarah said about Louis, Louis, Louis Howe. Ugly, dirty little man. Who was he? What, what role did he play? And why did Sarah call him an ugly, dirty little man? Well, Louis Howe had been a newspaper man and had watched how Franklin had um, had behaved as a New York, as a senator in the New York legis- legislature in Albany and realized that this was a man with a future and decided to attach himself to Franklin. And he proved to be a very canny advisor on how Franklin should pursue his career, how he should promote his political interests. But it has to be said that Louis Howe was not somebody who would normally be in Sarah Delano's, uh, Sarah, Sarah Roosevelt's social circle. I mean, he was a sort of untidy guy who was a chain smoker and who had terrible health. And um, he smelt of tobacco the whole time. And Sarah didn't like the fact that he was encouraging her son, Franklin, to have a political career. And she certainly didn't like the fact that Louis Howe was always with Franklin and that Sarah often sort of couldn't get a word in because Franklin and Louis Howe were busy um, conspiring together. And Louis Howe was also realized what Eleanor Roosevelt, what his, his candidate's wife, had real potential to enlist uh, members of the party to speak for Franklin when he was so sick after he'd had polio that he himself was incapacitated. He used Eleanor and and groomed her to be a an impressive public speaker and to understand the issues in democratic politics in those days. And so on both counts, the fact that he was not a spiffy dresser and he was encouraging politics in her household and he was too close and had sort of didn't have amazingly smooth union club manners um sarah really disliked him back across the ocean again um the closeness issue with jenny jerome churchill and her son why did she follow him or maybe she preceded him i can't remember to the Boer War and explain that and the main, the the ship that was the medical ship. This was something, I, I mean, I know quite a lot of British history, but this took me quite by surprise because I had no idea that Jenny had uh, shown this initiative. But at the end of the nine, 1890s, Jenny really is looking around for something to do, although it was inappropriate for a woman in her position, a widow in her position still at that stage, to even think of having a career or a profession. But she was asked to take charge of an initiative, which was that there would be um, American money poured into a hospital ship that would uh, look after soldiers, British soldiers who'd been wounded in the Boer War in South Africa. There'd been sort of constant eruptions of um, aggression in the South African colonies. And Winston was determined to go and uh, write about it. And she was quite envious of Winston. She felt, you know, all the young men and all the exciting action was going to be in South Africa and she wasn't going to be there. Then she was asked to organize this hospital ship and she threw herself into the project. She enlisted a lot of help from her um, influential friends. She got the wives of several cabinet ministers to be on her committee. And she did an incredible job fundraising, both in London and in New York. She herself was an extraordinary pianist. She was concert standard. And she gave a lot of concerts to raise money 
for this hospital ship, they overshot their target on money raising. But she not only organized the um, fundraising and the outfitting of this ship, she then decided she was going to go with it to South Africa. And she sailed uh, in the late 1899 into right round uh, across the equator down to South Africa to um, ensure that the ship was used properly. And it was it was an impressive feat. It really was. Um, she she stuck with it. I have to say that it was also convenient because both her sons at this stage were in South Africa and it allowed her to see them. Um, Winston Churchill had just had a daring escape from um, captivity, uh, from prison, and was strutting around being uh, very proud of himself with, with good reason. And Jack had also been there and he'd been wounded. He was one of her first patients. But um, Jenny could make things happen, and she made that hospital ship happen. She also, according to your book, abruptly said, I want the ship to go back to Great Britain. And why was that? Because they wanted that ship to stay there. Actually, it was the other way around. The government wanted the ship to go back, just load up with um, soldiers, wounded soldiers, and take them back to Britain. She said, no, no, this is a hospital ship. And we've we've shipped out with um, uh, the surgical facilities and everything, so that we can be a off um, offshore hospital. And said no, it shouldn't immediately turn around and go home. She relented eventually because she wanted to go home, but um, she could. And then she just sort of sent a telegram to the. Minister for War and say it said, okay, ready to come home. Please issue orders. I mean, she she could pull all the strings. What do you think was her biggest impact on Winston Churchill's political career and the way he was when he became prime minister? How much impact did she have on him? I think sort of superficially the, the biggest um, advantage he had, thanks to his mother, was all the contacts particularly at the beginning of his career, because, you know, it's two decades after her death before he actually becomes prime minister. But she had done so much to promote him when he was a young man. More fundamentally, it's how he learned that the mother-son bond between Jenny and Winston was one that was built in those early years when she was actually busy having a... Uh, a great time in London that she wasn't paying him much attention he knew she loved her she loved him he was confident of that but he wanted her attention and he used a combination of tactics which included um, sort of needy emotional demands and tears temper tantrums seductive charm everything that in fact when you then read about the later Churchill and how he treated people more generally, particularly if he wanted something from them. It was the same armory of tactics. It was sort of um, emotional appeals, sometimes bullying, ta- bullying temper tantrums, very demanding, could be seductive when he wanted to be, to get his way. And I think that that, that began with the relationship with his mother. When you're in the book, when you're talking about both men, uh, you talk about FDR when he was first elected to the legislature in New York, and I wrote these quotes down that he was insufferably arrogant, rarely smi- smiling, not particularly charming, uh, appearance of looking down his nose at others, and contrast that with the first time FDR met Winston Churchill. And he came away with the same opinion of Winston Churchill. Where do you think they got this kind of personality? And did it have anything to do with their mothers? I think that the fact that the young Franklin was certainly sort of radiated superiority and arrogance, and the young Winston was equally bumptious and presumptuous they both had a big sense of entitlement because of their backgrounds i mean they were two very privileged young men 
at the stage that they first met during the First World War, when a, a meeting that Winston Churchill himself didn't even recall. Um, so that I think that it, it was not so much what their mothers had imparted to them at that stage. It was just the circumstances of the um, sense of entitlement they'd both been born with. You you talk about the the polio incident in his life, which of course changed his life a lot. But when how did Sarah, his mother, find out that he was diagnosed with polio? Sarah was coming back from Paris and her ship steamed into New York Harbor. She expected to be met by Franklin because he always met her ship whenever he could. Um, and it wasn't Franklin, it was her brother. And with a note from Eleanor saying that we're up in Campobello and Franklin is rather ill. She didn't say what was wrong, but then Sarah heard that in fact it was polio and it, which was shocking. I mean, there were regular polio outbreaks, but they were usually, it was infantile paralysis, it was called. It was a children's disease. So she was horrified, went straight up to Campobello and to the cottage where Franklin was lying paralyzed on a bed, in the bed that he crawled into several days earlier and hadn't even been able to get out of on his, uh, by, by himself. And typical Delano reserve, instead of weeping or um, sort of having an outflow of emotion between mother and son, she just says, well, you know, this is a funny kind of greeting. And he said, well, it's not quite how I hope to say hello. And then they chatted away, pretended, you know, this he was going to get get ready, get improved, get well within a few days. And um, they pretend they go into a state of denial. She, in fact, doesn't stay around because she can see that Eleanor and Louis Howe uh, are the people that Franklin really wants because they'll do all the practical stuff of lifting him and making sure he can go to the bathroom and feeding him. He's helpless. She doesn't know what to do. And so she actually temporarily leaves, but she writes in a very shaky hand this letter to Eleanor where she talks about our invalid. She realizes how serious it is. And um, she's devastated. At this stage, she thinks Franklin must leave politics. At this stage, Franklin is, is helpless, but he can be a fine country gentleman like his father was, and he can just run the Hyde Park estate. And she's very upset when uh, she hears that that's not what Franklin intends. Women got the right to vote in the United States in 1920, in Great Britain in about 1928. That's about 100 years ago. You say that both Sarah and Jenny didn't think women needed the vote. Why not? Well, the way that our history is written today, we often read about the great leaders of the suffrage movement and assume that you know they had an army of women behind them. And they did, but there were many women who did not question the status quo. And both Sarah and Ellen, Sarah and Jenny fall into that category. You know, they felt that um, there were two spheres of influence. There was the private sphere, which was the female sphere, and there was the public life, which was a male sphere. And of course, at this stage, women couldn't vote, women couldn't hold political office, and Jenny and Sarah decided, had grew up with that assumption. It wasn't until their sons, for their own good political reasons, began to endorse the um, idea of votes for women that the two women could see that uh, which way the political tide was running and uh, decided rather reluctantly to support it. But both actually felt that they had enough influence in their own lives to um, decide what they wanted to do in their life. Because again, these were very privileged women. Jenny knew that her charisma and beauty and connections could get her most of what she wanted. And Sarah knew that she had one of the largest fortunes in the United States and she could get what she wanted. Where did Sarah's money come from? Sarah 
was the daughter of a man who Warren Delano came from a very established family which had been um, in the maritime trade for a long time. He, his family actually came out of New England, uh, primarily out of Boston. He, he was a, belonged to the Boston Brahmins. And he had made his fortune because there wasn't a lot of money in his family, although they had they could claim forebears who'd been on, on the Mayflower. He made his fortune in the China trade, which was huge for New England in the in the twentieth century, and in in the nineteenth century, sorry, and he um, that was primarily in tea and in silk and in opium, the fentanyl of its day. He made his fortune. He settled down in the Hudson Valley, but then he lost a lot of money in um, the downturn that began in the late 1850s and he realized he had to go back to China and to Hong Kong. He took his family with him. Um, by now there were several children and uh, they lived in Hong Kong while he recouped his fortune in the opium trade. I mean it, it was very lucrative and he was a very very good businessman. He recouped it and then came first back to Europe to Paris and then to the Hudson Valley. But the Delanos had far more money than the Roosevelts. So when when Sarah mar married James Roosevelt, her, her father was not really impressed by the amount of money James Roosevelt had because he had so much more. Did either Winston Churchill, and I know he was a big writer, or uh, Franklin, Delano Roosevelt, did either one of them ever make any money? Well, Franklin didn't in that, I mean, even when he was in the White House, the presidential salary at that stage really didn't, he barely covered the costs of running the White House. So let alone <clears throat> have any additional funds. So Sarah subsidized him. She paid about five, 50% of <laughs> the costs of the, um, running the White House, um, he didn't need to make money. There was always enough money behind him. Winston Churchill was, like his mother, wildly extravagant. You know, his idea of um, a economy campaign was to cut down from eight to four cigars a day, and let alone his champagne or brandy bills. He did make money, because he was very canny and he didn't make money as a politician and he didn't make money through his investments. He made money as an author. In fact, on his passport, even when he was an MP, when it said uh, profession, he always put author because he started from a very early age writing, writing histories. And his writings were absolutely uh, voluminous. And in fact, after the Second World War, he won a Nobel Prize for literature uh, because he, for his history of the Second World War. And he, he was the most extraordinary, most authors would just die to have the people that he had as his research assistants, stroke ghosts, uh, who all became some of the most formidable historians of their era. Many of the historians of Balliol College, Oxford, after they had got their doctorates, would um, work part-time for Winston Churchill drafting his history of the First World War or whichever volumes he was working on. He had a huge output and he would sort of leapfrog from one large advance to another. And as he became more successful as a politician, his sales on both sides of the Atlantic grew very rapidly. Here's a, we've got to wrap it up, but here's a very simple question for you. What have you been doing for the last 45 years in Canada? What have I been doing? Yes. I started as a magazine writer. I started writing books about um, nearly 30 years ago. And I've done a lot of political commentary in Canada because I live in Ottawa. And as a magazine writer, I wrote about Canadian politics. And I've also... Um, spent 
45 years trying to improve my backhand at tennis. What, after this book was finished, what was your favorite thing about doing this? I loved writing this book. I, I found them fascinating individuals. And one of the great things I finally did this summer, because most of the time I was writing this book during COVID, which was very restrictive and I couldn't get to the archives when I wanted to. But this summer, after the book was at the, uh, at the printers, I finally got to Campobello and saw the cottage that the Roosevelts had there and saw the 18 bedrooms in this cottage and also what an extraordinary place it was to uh, for a young man to go sailing. The title of the book is Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons, The Lives of Jenny Jerome Churchill and Sarah Delano Roosevelt. Our author is, are you, I assume you're Canadian now. Are you? I'm Canadian and British. And British. By the way, was she, um, Jenny Jerome Churchill, American and British? Yes. Charlotte Gray is our guest. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was a wonderful opportunity to talk about the book. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.